Please turn with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 33 through the end of the chapter. Jesus is going to address the sorrow of the disciples here, and he's going to talk about how that sorrow should not last and cannot last. Before we go to the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us with it, instruct us from it, convict us of our sins, and show us your truth, um, that you would help us to not be sorrowful as we look around the world, but to experience the joy that you have for us, the joy that comes through your resurrection, through your sitting, sitting at the right hand of the Father even right now and interceding for us. And so, Lord, help us as we go to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I read through this and talked, the, the passage talks about sorrow for a time and then joy afterwards, and it made me think about working out. I work out like five times a week. My wife and I go to CrossFit. A lot of you guys work out or have or want to, and so you kind of understand this whole idea of what I'm talking about. There, When you're working out or wanting to get in shape, Whatever that means for you, that we all have this desire to stay healthy, even if, you know, looking like the people in the magazines aren't really a thing for us. We at least want to be here when our kids have their kids, and we want to, to extend our own lives and have a good quality of life, and that's a good thing. We, working out's a good thing. But it's not fun a lot of times, and we know that. It's fun in the sense, like, I enjoy it. I like lifting heavy things and throwing them around and uh, kind of like being um, getting my stress out on the weight, and it's a good thing. But I don't enjoy that uncomfortable feeling of sore muscles, and I don't enjoy feeling my lungs straining to get air, and I don't enjoy being fatigued or being stretched out or any of those things because we have limits, right? And we don't enjoy being uncomfortable. Who likes that? That'd be really strange if you just love being uncomfortable. All right? So why do we do it? Again, we see some sort of intrinsic value in the results that happen as a result of working out. We Seeing those results, when you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, wow, I look different, that's a good thing, that takes away that desire to quit and just sit on the couch. Right? The results, the joy of seeing the change is what keeps us going. We're encouraged. The process doesn't seem that bad all of a sudden, at least until the next day. All right. Well, as we've been going through this last couple of chapters of the book of John, we've experienced the same kind of idea with the disciples. They've been told that something good is going to come. Something better that they have even right now with the Lord Jesus being with them. However, they are saddened by the soon-to-be loss of their friend and their Lord, Jesus. They're experiencing this idea in that they are having to go through something very difficult that would cause them to question their beliefs and even challenge their own commitment to their faith. Yet, they are told that just a little while longer, is what the Lord says, that these promises that they're holding to are going to come true. They're going to see the joy. The sorrow that they were experiencing is going to be completely overcome by the joy that was about to happen. 
And so as we look at this passage today, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about it, about our own tendencies to not believe this idea that joy is going to come. We tend to want to stay in the sorrow or think that that's all there is sometimes, forgetting the promises of God. So with this text, we're going to consider two ideas that, first of all, there will be sorrow. And secondly, the sorrow cannot last. And so with that, let's read the text together, standing as we do so. John chapter 16, starting at verse 16 and going through verse 33. John 16, 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And, and again a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not... We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourself, what I meant by saying, A little while, and, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for, jo for the joy that, that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but, you will, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, what will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and I... And have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And am now leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples, his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. This is God's word, and have a seat. So I went to uh, my parents' house this past weekend and was able to listen to some Christian radio on the way there and on the way back, and one of these pervasive themes kept coming out. We're, we're in the midst of a political season, and over and over, I guess I just happened to hit the right time of day, it was all like the Christian political hour, 
they were talking about the tribulation that our country is going through and the difficult times that are ahead. That these are something as what about difficult times? And what does the Bible say about tribulation? Well, first of all, it says that these are some things Christians will have to endure. There's no scriptural support for the idea that Christians will be given a life without problems. I think we all understand that. We generally believe the idea, I think, and we understand that it's sin and death on earth from which all these difficulties come. We get that. However, I think, and it's particularly what I heard from these radio people, and I think that you're just talking to people in general, for this particular election season, it may be helpful for us to understand the general narrative that is spoken by many Christians, especially on evangelical talk radio, which just gets said again by people that you know, and that's fine. And you're familiar with this narrative. America is, was a Christian nation, and we have experienced God's blessing. Sure, we have experienced God's blessing, that's true. And if we, But what they say then, if we want to con- continue to have God's blessing, then we'll elect the right person. It's kind of the narrative that's going on there. And the idea behind this narrative is that we can somehow control the estate of our nation by electing a particular person into office. And we all want some things to go on, right? We all want babies to stop dying from abortion. We all want all types of people to be treated equally. We all want our country to be safe and free. We all want these things. These are good things. But we must understand the only person that can deliver our nation is Jesus Christ, not some man or woman in the White House. We'll have difficult times, and to some degree, we're always going to have difficult times until Jesus comes back. But he is our Savior, not the next president. And uh, there's a song I want to read to you guys, some of the lyrics, by a Christian artist named Derek Webb. And he wrote a song called A Savior on Capitol Hill. And I'm going to read the last couple stanzas of this song to you. It says, All our problems are going to disappear when we can whisper right in that president's ear. We could walk right across the reflection pool, or he could walk right across the reflection pool in his combat boots and a $10,000 suit. You can render unto Caesar everything that's his. You can trust in his power to come to your defense. It's the way of the world. It's the way of the gun. It's the trading of an, of an evil for a lesser one. So don't hold your breath or your vote until you think you finally found a savior up on Capitol Hill. What's the point? Well, the point is we need Jesus, not a Christian president, not someone to save us in Washington. That's not going to happen That's not going to be the end of the tribulation in this country. Things are not going to get better because a particular person is in office. That's a farce. We shouldn't believe that. And I think it should, I think it'll help us as Christians to understand when we minister to others around us. Because look on social media, look on everything. The nation's divided. People hate one another just because they back a particular candidate for no other reason. They decide what a person is about just because they like someone. 
let's not, that shouldn't be us, brothers and sisters. We need to know how to talk about these things and minister to people. And they all, we all live in a lost world. We all live in a place that is going through difficult times and tribulation and sorrow, not because of the state of our country, but because of sin and death. And Jesus is the answer. So I just thought I would add that, particularly from what I've heard recently. And I think it's just good for us to uh, be able to minister to those who are also hearing the same things. And so Jesus begins by talking about in this passage that there will be sorrow. He says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me. What's Jesus talking about? Well, he said this as he's comforting his followers. And what what does this do to them? Well, it confuses them. The disciples are an easily confused bunch as we've been reading through this book. And not to say they're worse or better than us, we just they just are confused by what Jesus is saying because sometimes what Jesus says doesn't altogether make sense. But what does Jesus mean by this? Well, we have a different view than the disciples did in that we know the end of the story. What does he mean? Well, we know that he is going away. In a few short hours, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified as an innocent man, and he's going to be killed and buried. We know that that's about to happen. He's going to be taken away. And they're going to mourn for those during those days for Jesus in the tomb. But on the third day, they're going to go to the tomb, and he's not there. And he's going to show up among them. Again, they're going to see him in a little while. On the third day, they're going to see him. This word, again, is kind of an open-ended idea. The disciples didn't know what to expect, but again, we know the end of the story. But they said, what does it mean by a little while? We've been told something similar, haven't we? A little while. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. It's the last chapter of the Bible. Easy to find. If you're like me, I've always wondered what it means when Jesus says, I'm going to come back in a little while. To the disciples right then, he was saying, I'm going to be back on the third day. But he's also told us things like this. Look at Revelation 22, 6 and 7. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has said, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon, says the Lord Jesus. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what has been done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Jesus says over and over again, I am coming soon. And what is John's response to that there in verse 20? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Way back in 70 AD or so, John is saying this. There is a very real sense in which the church is currently like a person waiting to see the results from working out, right? Jesus has told us it's going to happen soon. 
When is soon? How long do we have to wait? John would have liked it to have happened right there, because he was on the island of Patmos, dying by himself. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We know that when he comes, what's going to happen? It's going to be great. We're going to get to go home to heaven. Most of us, if not all of us, probably will die before he does come back. And of course, we don't know when he's coming back. But speaking for the church in general, speaking for the church then, now, and forever, we long for the return of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I am coming soon. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Soon is kind of a relative term for him. But for us, it seems like an eternity. For someone who exists outside of time, soon is a very near thing. But for us, soon seems like forever. When is he coming back? We don't know. But we long for the return of Jesus. Why? Because we know that what we experience in this world right now isn't right. It isn't the right thing. We long to see things made right. We long to see things made new. We long for this idea that Jesus talks about in the book of Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we all, Christians from time and all eternity, will be together eating and celebrating with him. We long for that. We want that. But the world also wants that, right? They don't know Jesus, but they also have that longing. They want to see things made right again. Just read their stories. Pick up any fantasy novel written by a non-Christian person, and there is this longing for things to be made right. There's broken things in the world, and they want it to be made right, and there's a hero in the story that is doing that thing, making it right. That is a Christian concept that the lost world longs for. Listen to their music. What is all music about? There is this one thing that is going to make my life better, or there is this one thing that has made it bad, make it better again. And usually the lost world, what are they crying out for? Some sort of substance, boyfriend, girlfriend, something to make it better, but they desire a savior. They want things to be made right again. What does the Bible say about this? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. The language in Romans 8 is very helpful for us to understand this, this real sense in which the world is longing for the return of its creator, of its savior. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why would the creation wait? What happened back in Genesis 3? Was it just Adam and Eve that fell? All of creation fell. All of creation is broken. So creation longs. For the creation, verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It also waits for that time when the Lord is coming back. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation... We know that the whole creation, verse 22, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I love how Paul describes this. Yes, Christians are waiting, but all of creation waits, groaning. Paul compares it to childbirth. This is a painful experience, this waiting, this patiently waiting. And though we know it isn't right, and we know that sorrow is a broken thing, is not something that should be happening, it is something that we live in. And so how can we use this sorrow, which Paul tells us that works together for the good of those who love him, 8.28, we all know that verse, in order to see the kingdom of God come, in order to see the name of Jesus be glorified. The Christian has hope that the unbeliever doesn't have. And we share in that hope. We share something different with the unbelieving world. The world hopes for a Savior on Capitol Hill. The world hopes for someone else to save them. Money, for good health, all these things that can't save us, the world is hoping for them. They know it can't save them. They're, they're upset. They're, all, they're desperate for something. Ask anyone to be truthful. Just ask them. Do you really think that if we had such and such as president that it's going to be better, that it's going to help us? What are they going to say? No, it can't really make our lives good. Good health is not really going to make our lives that meaningful because it's just fleeting as well. We only have so many years anyway. Money's not going to do it. Look at all the wealthy, unhappy people. These things can't save us. We know something that they don't, though. We know that there is one who says sorrow will only last for a while. And so we should live, Christians, as if that's true. And our lives should show that difference. It doesn't mean that we don't experience sorrow and that we don't mourn the loss or long for redemption. And I would even say, if anything, we even, as Christians, mourn more and know real sadness more because we know how things really should be. What does it mean, or what it does mean, is that we can really show our Lord to folks by simply showing them that hope, for, that the hope of Jesus in our sorrow, because we as Christians should be experiencing that hope more than anybody, and that we have this hope for joy and gladness in tomorrow. I mean, read the psalm that we, that we looked at uh, in the bulletin, Psalm 30. It talked about that the night is going to just last for a while, but we will have joy for tomorrow, Isaiah chapter 61, the words of Jesus. This is why he came to minister and that he's going to exchange beauty for ashes, sorrow for gladness. 
we're going to have the good things that are due us, but now we're going to have to deal with this sorrow. And again, this brings us to the last point. The sorrow cannot last. He says, the Lord Jesus says, you will weep, but the Lord, the world will rejoice. Again, the world's going to be happy with the death of its creator. It hates its creator because it hates that it's not God. It hates The world hates that it's not God. It longs for the death of its creator so that it can take the throne. When Jesus dies on the cross, it is happy. But that sorrow is going to be turned to joy. Again, we have this childbirth metaphor that Jesus uses there in John 16. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I understand the joy of having a child. I have three. I was there when all three of them were born. I remember seeing my wife in pain and how hard that must have been, but I have no idea what the pain of childbirth is like. I just remember how hard it was for me to see her in pain. But I remember seeing that how that immediate stress and pain and all of that just went away as soon as they handed the babies to her. It was this overcoming of joy. You guys know what I'm talking about. Those of you who have kids, you know. It's like this, all the sorrow just completely goes away that you have this little life there with you. All of that sorrow is gone. Paul alludes to that when he talked about the groaning of childbirth, the groaning and pains of childbirth awaiting the redemption of our bodies, our adoption as sons. We await the time when we'll be with Jesus whether because of our death or his return. We await that, but it's a painful waiting. For the disciples, they would have this immense sorrow when Jesus died, but their sorrow would be turned to joy when they went to the tomb and it was empty. Peter went to the tomb sorrowful, but he ran back with joy in his heart because he knew the Lord wasn't there. The Lord was alive. And no one could take that joy from them. They would be threatened, they'd be arrested, they'd be beaten. Remember Peter in Acts 4. He was taken to the authorities, and he, was, he stood before the authorities. They told him to stop preaching. And he said, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. He couldn't help it. He was overflowed with joy. He didn't care that he was going to be beaten and arrested over and over again. And he was over and over again. They could not take that joy away from him. If they tried, he preached to the guards in prison. He couldn't help but share this joy with them. Why? Because Peter knew the end. He knew what the results, what the results were. And whatever torment he had to endure would be totally worth it. And he, like the other disciples, all endured real torment for their faith. But now they all experience the joy of Jesus. And so Jesus reminds them that whatever they ask for, he'll give them. They're in the next section of text. They prayed. You see this in Acts. They prayed. Their prayers were answered. Their joy continued to increase as they saw the Lord's work. He talks more about going back to the Father there in the next section. 
And I love how he says he's using figures of speech to talk. And all this time, Jesus has been using what we would think of as figures of speech to talk. But his, and his disciples have been having trouble understanding, Lord, where are you going? We don't understand what you mean by this. And they've been having trouble with this. But all of a sudden, they get it. Did Jesus change his message? No. It's just all of a sudden they could finally understand what he was saying. They kind of had this aha moment. They said, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Jesus hasn't changed his message at all. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. They get it all of a sudden. But what does Jesus say to them? Well, you might get it right now, but in a few short hours, you're going to be scattered. You're going to leave me alone. You're going to see the Roman centurions coming, and you're going to run. Even after this very good moment right here that they're having. And so the question, I think, for us, why is it that even though we know this joy that is to come, why do we remain in a sorrowful estate, even when we know the truth of Jesus, when we know the power of his resurrection. Sometimes, like the disciples, I think we get bogged down in the here and now for a time. We could see the end game. Sometimes it's really good. Sometimes it's really plain for us. But when they see Jesus being arrested by those centurions, they scatter. Because they're afraid. And I think it's easy for us to feel joyful reading about the promises of God and singing his praises. But when the ceiling comes down, whatever form that takes, you know what I'm talking about, we easily lose heart. We easily become fearful. And this fear can manifest itself as worry and doubt. And we know those times. And worry and doubt can turn into more worry and doubt. It's just this ever-present cycle. Or, it can take another form. It can turn into pride. And this pride is, well, the Lord's not working for me, so I'm going to turn away from Him. God's not working anymore, so I'm going to do this myself. I think we're all guilty of both of those, depending on the situation. I mean, again, I'll just take this gym membership thing. Again, think about it. In January, you're all like, New Year, I'm going to buy a gym membership and I'm going to uh, go and work out and this you're on this new year high but when March rolls around it's cold outside it's time to go to the gym you reach for a box of Little Debbie's instead of going to the gym we all know that feeling because it gets hard it gets difficult consider this consider Jesus who has undergone more tribulation and trial than anyone Consider what Jesus is getting ready to go through. What does he tell his disciples? You're going to be scattered. You're going to leave me alone in this most horrible hour. But what does he say? I'm not alone. The Father is with me. I have said this, that you might have peace. How? Because you're never alone either. Who in Christ, who in Christ can ever say, that they are alone. The Father provides for our needs. The Son intercedes continually at the right hand of the Father. 
The Spirit is here, our helper, dwelling within us. Again, salvation is a Trinitarian thing. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit are all right here with us. We are never alone. That day on the cross, when Jesus took upon himself my sin and your sin, the Father turned his face away from him because he hates sin. He was really alone, truly alone. But now, and because of that, when he sees me, what does he say to me? I will never leave you or forsake you because you have the righteousness of the Son. He's faithful and he's good and he will be right here. And so in conclusion, what does Jesus say to his disciples? His parting words before he prays for them in John 17, which we'll talk about next week. In this world, you will have tribulation. And I think we know that. Life's hard. We all want things to make it better, right? We want whatever it's going to be. Money, health, the president, good friends, food, whatever's going to make it better. We all want those things. However, all of these things are really just band-aids. None of them can save us. None of them are even capable of saving us. But what does Jesus say? I have overcome the world. Take heart. I have overcome the world. We know that no matter what may come, it has been defeated. We have victory because Jesus Christ has victory. This frees us as Christians, no matter what is happening, to have live a joyful life. Not one that ignores difficulty, that doesn't mourn. I'm not saying that. I think as Christians, again, we should mourn more than anyone. We should know how to mourn because we know what's actually bad. We don't want to have this fake smile about us. It's not a good thing. I think, if anything, being the joyful life is an authentic one. We are free to cry and to mourn because we long for something that we know is much better than what we have currently. But it also frees us to show the world this joy because they are desperate for it. Again, they think right now that one of two billionaire politicians are going to give them some kind of joy. They can't. They're not going to. But Jesus can. And so let us tell them about Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're sorry for those times that we seek joy in other things, things that can't last, things that won't last. Help us to seek joy in you, to see you in the good things of this world, to see you in redemption, to see your kingdom going forward. Help us to then take that message and to share it with a lost world that is seeking a Savior anywhere but in the only true Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's only by his name that they can be saved. Lord, help us to share his name, to make it known. It's in his name we pray. Amen.